If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Rochelle's. Today's episode 268, and we're going to be interviewing Allie. How are you doing, Allie? I'm good. How are you, Jim? I'm Thanks doing for well. having me. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. So um, you're down in Virginia. How's it? How's everything down there? Um, well, today it's actually beautiful. It's been raining a lot this week, but it's um, it's a really nice day out. <laughs> yeah, same up here. It rained for like five days straight. Yeah. All right, so let's get started. Um, like I said before, first question I ask everyone is tell me about your childhood and growing up. Um, I don't actually like to talk about my childhood uh, because it was very traumatic. And um, I'm surprised I'm where I am today because uh, my dad, my stepdad, um, I don't know my biological father other than he was also an alcoholic. Um, but we'll get into that. My my stepdad uh, was a very abusive alcoholic and my mom was very codependent, enabling narcissist. So, uh, uh, and I know she won't listen to the podcast, so that's okay. Um, but it was, rough to say the least. Um, I had three brothers. Um, I was a middle child. Um, my older brother was my stepbrother who has passed away and, uh, also from alcoholism and, um, my younger two brothers, I don't speak to anymore. I don't have a relationship with my, either of my parents, or uh, my brothers. Um, I still maintain a relationship with my aunt and uncle who are more like my parents than my parents ever were. And uh, my cousin, those are the only like blood relatives that I maintain a relationship with. But um, growing up, we moved a lot. Um, we were never in one place too long. And I think that probably had a lot to do with my dad's alcoholism looking back. Um, and, uh, it was just a really volatile household. Yeah. Just, there was a lot of chaos. Um, so I learned very quickly how to survive, um, by withdrawing and, um, kind of, um, making myself small as it were, um, and what do you mean? By, what do you mean by making yourself small? Um, you know, not not involving myself in things as as you know, a lot of people do a lot of things with their families, and and I never really did. I stayed in my room a lot. I read a lot. I'm an avid reader now, still to this day. Um, 
which has probably helped with my recovery a little bit. Um, but um, I read a lot. I, you know, just stayed in my room as much as possible and tried to stay out of the, out of the chaos. Um, because it, it, it was good when it was good and it was terrible when it was terrible. Um, if, if my dad ran out of alcohol, it, it became a problem very quickly. Um, so that's, that's always, sorry, my dog is, he's, he's probably going to whine a lot. Um, I might end up going out on my balcony, so we can't hear him, but, um, so yeah, it, it wasn't a great childhood. Um, I was an honors student, um, and that's impressive uh, because well school was an escape for me and and um doing well um i am gonna go outside sorry i'm gonna take this out outside if you don't mind no, um, of course not. so um anyway sorry for saying um so much um school school is an escape and I was an honor student because if if I did well in school, my my mom would show me love, you know, like that was how I received love and how I understood love to be given was that if you do well and do what you're supposed to um, as a child, then your parents love you and if you step out of line in any way then they don't um so that was kind of my childhood experience um so I grew up with uh, a lot of mental health issues um related to that sounds like a rough childhood I'm sorry to hear that but the good old fashioned saying, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? Yeah, I don't think so much it made me stronger. I think it made me funnier. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. That was probably a terrible joke. Um, no. But I have, uh, I have learned to be... Uh, more vigilant you know like it it did give me a lot of survival um techniques that are not great as an adult you know like i i tend to mask a lot when um when i'm around people i use humor to deflect i you know have a lot of tendencies that like boundaries are hard for me, um, but I'm learning through therapy, which I highly recommend if you've had a rough childhood to go to therapy because it's helpful. Um, but yeah, it, it gave me a lot of coping, unhealthy coping mechanisms. We'll put it that way. Um, but here I am still living and still trying, which is, always good you know so um, as a child what, what were your like thoughts on the drinking like did you get what was happening when your dad was drinking so I took my first drink 
with my stepdad uh, when I was six years old. Um, I drank tequila. I have a memory of sitting in the dark and him giving me tequila. And that's where the memory ends and probably for good reason. I don't know, but um, my first experience with alcohol was at six years old. Uh, so um, young. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't really understand what alcoholism was. I thought that was normal. You know, I thought your dad getting up in the morning and having a beer or having hard liquor in his coffee was a normal thing because, you know, at, at the time when I was much younger, my uncle was also an alcoholic. My uncle is an alcoholic, but he's been sober 30 years and he's someone that I, you know, trust implicitly um, now. And, uh, but like that was a normal part my childhood like alcohol was just in the house constantly and my parents drank and I'm pretty sure they did harder drugs like cocaine um pretty sure that happened a few times um but so for me I didn't see that as alcoholism because I didn't know um because you're a kid you don't you know people don't go oh that person's an alcoholic and you're supposed to know what that is at seven years old or eight years old or even 12 years old. Like you, you don't know that if you grow up with it, you don't know that those behaviors are abnormal. Absolutely. So I'm sorry if I missed this part. So what, what was your mom like with the drink? Was she drinking also or doing anything? My mom would drink occasionally, but very rarely did I see her drink. Um, and I don't know if she hit it or if she just didn't because my dad was the problem drinker in, in our family. And um, so I have no idea what happened with her as far as drinking goes. I just know that there was a lot of denial of any kind of problem at all. Um, my mom liked to kind of pretend that problems didn't exist. Um, a lot of the time it was, you know, oh, everything's fine. Like we were in church all the time. Like as often as the doors were open, we were there. I grew up in church. I don't believe in God. Um, and I always felt a little weird going to church and didn't know why until I got older. And then I was like, Oh yeah, none of this makes sense to me. And um, so it was, you know, it was one of those things where we would go to church and my mom would pretend like everything was great at home and fine. And, you know, we would get home and, and all hell would break loose. And like quite literally it was more chaos than not. And, um, so she was either she hit it very well or she wasn't a, a drinker. And I know she did use harder drugs. Um, I know that there was some cooking involved at some point um, because she had a lot of pressure from my dad to be a certain, look a certain way. 
um, skinny was a thing in the 80s. And so I'm sure that was part of the cocaine use. But um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know if she ever truly drank a lot or not. I just know that my dad was typically the one with either a beer or some type of hard liquor in his hands. And going back for a moment, I think you're the youngest person I've ever heard so far on the podcast. Six years old, that's so young for the first, and yeah. especially for something like tequila. Like usually <laughs> the kid's first sip is like of a beer or something really light. Yeah, my cousin and I would spend our summers with my grandparents. And I remember us, like, I think we're around eight or nine years old. My grandfather would fall asleep in front of a baseball game and leave his caps to blue ribbon sitting there. And of course, she and I would like take turns drinking it, thinking, you know, oh, we're so cool because we're just like grandpa. Uh, alcoholism runs rampant in my family. <laughs> so it's no surprise that um, that that was my drug of choice. Um, Alcohol? Yeah. Yeah. Um I uh I started drinking after college, surprisingly. Like I didn't really drink too much in high school. Um there were a couple of times that, you know, my friends would have some like I mean again, I grew up in the eighties and nineties, so like mad dog twenty twenty <laughs> was a thing. Um, because it was easy to steal from the, the gas station. Um, and, uh, my friends did that a lot. And then, uh, there was beer and then there was, uh, an incident with peach schnapps that was terrible. And I will probably never, ever drink that again. Well, I know I won't drink it again, but like, yeah, that was. The first and last time I had peach schnapps. <laughs> um, what happened? Kid, you know, um, I threw up a lot. <laughs> I drank a lot of it and I threw up a lot. And, Got real uh, sick. Yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't great. Um, but um, so yeah, in high school I didn't really drink too much. Um, I did watch my dad continue to destroy his life and, and everyone's life around him, you know, as, as much as he could, um, which was really sad now that I think about it, you know, more from a recovery standpoint, he went to AA one time, um, and I went to Alateen, um, a couple of times and then I don't know what happened other than probably he just relapsed and um, my mom decided we didn't know to, need to go to Alateen or Al-Anon anymore. And that was, that was my introduction to AA at a younger age. Um, How was Alateen? Not helpful. No? Surprisingly. Um, no. And I think a lot of it had to do with the um, the trauma that was involved at home. Like dealing with trauma is a different 
almost a, a completely different program than dealing with alcoholism because alcoholism is a symptom of deeper problems. And um, for me, that was trauma-based and AA does a great job of dealing with alcoholism, but um, the trauma part of, of, you know, recovery is something that you have to deal with in a different way. Um, and explaining trauma to people in Alateen as a teenager, it, it doesn't often compute because people don't, that's not the focus of the program. The focus of the program is to learn more about why an alcoholic does what they do and like how to navigate that as a kid, which is an absurd ask. When you're a child, you should be able to be a child. And unfortunately, that's not the case with a lot of children who are um, born into alcoholism. Based on your experiences with alcoholism, and you said it runs, uh, runs rampant in your family, do you think it's a genetic thing or do you think it's something to do with the environment they're raised in or been around? Um, I think a little bit of both. Um, I think, I mean, there there are studies that are, you know, based on is alcoholism a genetic um, disease? And, you know, partially, I believe wholeheartedly that it is because, like, when you have, you know, generational trauma and generational, you know, diseases, they do get passed down. And, and I think that um, there is a genetic predisposition to alcoholism when you have alcoholic parents or and, and they have alcoholic parents and so on and so forth, backwards in the in lineage. Um, but like, I do think there is an epigenetic which is environmental um, causation for alcoholism in in kids who are you know exposed to that on a daily basis, either through their parents or through you know um, relatives who they're close to or both. Um, because my grandfather was an alcoholic, my biological father was an alcoholic um my stepdad was an alcoholic and um i think my great grandfather also was um so definitely runs in the the male side of my family i'm not entirely sure about the the female side of my family only that they continued that cycle of enabling and codependency and things like that um things that I have to work on as an adult in therapy because that's totally how my brain works. My brain's like, sure, you know, you are treating me like you hate me. So that must mean you love me, right? Yeah. So things like that, you know, are, are part of the things that I in recovery am working on more for myself and becoming more confident in having boundaries and 
recognizing red flags and going, no, I don't agree with that. And, and being okay with having a voice. So yeah, that's <laughs> childhood in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so you went to college once you graduated high school? I did, yes. Um, what were you mostly studying? Mostly to get away. Um, so I I went to college. I went to a private Christian school, which is now hilarious to me. Um, but they offered me a scholarship, so I went. Um, but I studied English. Um, originally, I was pre-med and then decided about halfway through that um, I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I graduated with a degree in English um, and studied English literature quite a bit and then um, had a minor in biology with almost enough credits to double major, <laughs> but I didn't end up doing that um, because of the pre-med stuff. Um, so yeah, I went to, I, I went to college um, didn't drink the entire time I was in college. Um, got married at 20 years old. Um, so you were still in college when you got married? I was, yeah. I was. Um, married when I was 20 to someone who did not drink. Um, someone who was like on the opposite extreme of what I grew up with, um, super nice guy, very caring, very patient, but also very, very passive um, at that time. And uh, he was six years older than me and married when I was a junior in college and then um he was like but you have to finish college so that was a stipulation of us getting married while I was still in college um but graduated college turned 21 and decided that because 21 was the legal age of drinking that I could do that safely and not get into trouble you know I was always worried about getting into trouble um as a teenager because I didn't want my parents to notice me at all. So I did things a lot under the radar that um, they would not question. Um, like I would stay out late with my friends or, you know, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't do, I didn't, I, I wasn't a, a huge like troublemaker in, in high school. Um, and definitely, certainly not in college. Um, but I, I was very depressed and, and a lot of that was from, you know, again, that childhood trauma. I didn't go to class very often. Um, probably one of the bigger reasons I didn't end up doing pre-med was because I didn't care about school. I just cared about being away from my parents. Um, but after, fast forward, after I got married, uh, turned 21, at 22, I started my journey downward with alcohol. Um, 
I started drinking at 22 and remembered how fantastic it made me feel. Um, you know, you often feel bulletproof when you're drinking, you know, like you can do anything, you can achieve anything, you can be anything. And I, um, at that time also, you know, was undiagnosed. Um, I have bipolar two, which is a little, you know, a little less on the, let's go jump off a mountain mania, you know, like I do still stay up a lot at night. I have insomnia problems. I have, you know, a lot of sleep problems. I, um, I'm, getting better at this, but I'm often careless with money when I'm in a manic phase. And then the depression is just as terrible. You know, I want to sleep for days, but I'm, I'm learning through therapy, how to deal with that at 40, 44 years old. It's, it's not somewhere I thought I would be, but, um, sorry for jumping around, but, um, undiagnosed at that time, bipolar disorder, um, and alcohol is a depressant, but it exacerbates uh, mental health issues to a degree that I almost can't explain, but like the, you know, promiscuity is a thing that happens a lot or very, very reckless behavior. You know, I would often drive drunk. I'm surprised that I never hit anyone. I never, you know, I never hurt myself driving drunk. Um, I never had those experiences that a lot of people have when they, you know, put themselves in harmful situations because of alcoholism um, or because they're drunk. Or it, And I would get blackout drunk very frequently. Um, but... Um, at, you know, 22, I wasn't concerned. I didn't give a shit about anybody because you don't, when you're drinking that heavily, you don't care about anything. You don't care how your actions affect anyone. Uh, so, you know, fast forward, I was, I turned 25. I'm still drinking very heavily. Um, but I get pregnant with my, my first um, my first baby, um, and he'll be 18 this year. Oh. Um, yeah. So I stopped drinking long enough to, you know, make sure he was safe and, you know, cause I did want to have children and, you know, 25 is young, but it, I mean, it worked for me. I, I like my kids. Um, <laughs> you know, most people like their children. Um, but, you know, I stopped drinking long enough to, to have him. And then after he was born, um, I was very careful not to ever like drink when I was, you know, um, nursing him. And, um, I thought, you know, at that time, I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol. I thought it was fine. Um, you know, I would go and drink and then I would like do what moms call pump and dump where you, you know, you have 
milk that you don't want your child to have because it might have alcohol in it too. Um, but uh, then once I weaned him, I was drinking again. I was back off to the races. And um, my my children's father is such a patient person, such an amazing person. Um, but at that time, he was getting pretty tired of me drinking so much, you know, um, and I kept saying, I'm never going to be like my dad, you know, like, I don't have a problem. Like my dad had a problem, you know, it, it was one of those, like, this is not a problem. Like, I'm not a problem. You're the problem yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. And, uh, we did end up getting divorced. Um, not, Oh, um, not because of alcohol alone, but because, you know, I was like, I'm too adventurous for you. I'm too, you know, you're too passive. I want to, you know, go do lots of adventure things and you're just like, let me go to work and be a boring adult, you know? And a lot of that was because of the alcoholism. And, and at the time, you know, again, hindsight is a wonderful and terrible thing at the same time because you know you learn so much about yourself in recovery and I see how hurtful I was as a person then and um, it's not who I am intrinsically because I love people so much but at that time because alcohol makes you do stupid things <laughs> doing stupid things um, and then, you know, I got pregnant with my daughter, um, at 28. So now we're drinking for another year. And then, um, we ended up getting divorced when I was 30. Um, and the kids live with him and my children are the biggest loss, um, of my alcoholic career. Um, They live with their dad, um, and he said when we were getting divorced, the kids are coming with me, and if you try to take them, I will fight you, because he recognized what I couldn't, which was that my alcohol use was a problem, and I was not a stable parent. And I was not going to break those generational cycles of trauma and abuse at that time because I wasn't capable of being honest with myself. You know, the big book talks about being, um, talks about being uh, constitutionally incapable of being honest. And that's where I was at 30 years old. I was absolutely constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself, with him, with anyone else. Um, and so we were divorced and then, you know, fast forward 10 years at 40 years old, um, I met someone else and I uh, 
we started dating and we got married uh, when I was 41. And um, I was still drinking at that time. And I woke up one morning, it was in, in March, like March 3rd or something like that. Um, and I wanted to die. I wanted to just not exist anymore. Um, and a lot of it was, I know now was alcohol use. Um, you know, my uncle had been sober for around 20 something years at that point. And so, you know, I watched him in his AA program. I watched him grow and, um, I called them and I, and I was like, what is, you know, I think I need some help. Um, and I had a good job. I was married, you know, I was, I had a decent income, 401k. It, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a bottom that, you know, a lot of people experience where, you know, they go to jail or they're, you know, multiple DUIs or, you know, I hear stories of things like that happening all the time or waking up in some random person's house or waking up on a park bench somewhere, not knowing where you are. You know, I hear things like that all the time. And that never happened for me as an adult. Like I was very, you know, relatively successful after, you know, getting away from my family and like, you know, learning how to mask my alcoholism and learning how to uh, mask who I was as a person, which was someone with a lot of deep trauma and a lot of need for help um, that I wasn't getting. But I somehow managed, and, and I really think my higher power had a had a lot to do with, you know, management of my life. Um, it wasn't unmanageable in a, a physical sense, um, but mentally it wasn't acceptable to me as a person who I was. Mentally it was chaos and madness and insanity. What what we addicts like to call insanity, um, doing the same thing over and over again and you know, thinking, oh, this time it'll be different. Um, it wasn't. So, um, so at 41, I, uh, I joined AA, um, an AA program and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. Hated every second of it. I was like, I do not belong here. These people are insane. You know, you don't recognize it in yourself a lot of the times when you're unwilling to um, accept your powerlessness because I am a stubborn soul. I am so, you know, I can do this. I, you know, that survival technique that I learned as a kid where I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. I don't need this program. You know, those things kept going through my head. Um, even almost a year in um, to my program at 41. So I was in AA for a full year. 
before I decided that I was graduated. <laughs> I didn't need the program anymore um, because I had all the tools. You know, I had the 12 steps. I never read the big book um, because why would I read something that was written by a middle-aged white man when I was abused my entire life by a middle-aged white man? So, you know, it's like, I don't trust you. No, thank you, Bill. Um, and uh, yeah, that that whole year of of sobriety was kind of a joke. And I, I managed to not drink for two more years after I left the program. Um, a lot of meditation, a lot of like leaning into my higher power, which I didn't recognize I was doing at the time. Um, but also I was not sober during that time. I was dry. There is a difference between sobriety and dryness where you're like actually working the program where you're leaning into the people and the step work and um, going to meetings and having a service position and and creating space to um, have an openness to what the program brings, you know, whether that's a lot of honesty, a lot of looking at you know, yourself through the eyes of someone in recovery who who can also have compassion for your addict self, but also recognizing that that part of you needs help. Like embracing the fact that you can't do this on your own. <laughs> you do need some help. Um, that's to me, that's sobriety. In my experience, that that has been sobriety. And being dry is everything that that's not. You know, like, I can do it on my own. I don't need this program. I don't need the step work. I don't need help. I don't need to go to therapy. You know, I don't need all of these things that are going to help me grow as a person and become a, a better version of me. Saying I don't need all of that, that to me is just being dry and not really getting deeply honest with yourself as an addict. Um, and I don't identify myself as an alcoholic in my meetings. Even I say I'm an addict because, you know, alcohol is my drug of choice and it is a drug. And um, a lot of people are like, oh my God, you, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not an addict, but we're the same that you know that picture in the office which which one is this that they're the same picture it's the same thing and maybe a lot of people will get angry at me for saying that but that's how I feel it's the same thing um so I was dry for three years and then I went back out I went to New Orleans and I was like well I'm in New Orleans <laughs> like I have to, you know, have my bourbon and a cigar in a cigar bar in New Orleans because that's what I want to do. So it's on my bucket list. So I must do it. Um, and I did. And uh, that first drink of alcohol is never the last one. Um, 
and it's never enough. And I jumped back in with both feet, just back into, you know, every night I needed to drink. It was the ritual that I created around coming home from work, you know, having a bottle of wine or two bottles of wine or, you know, puking after the second bottle and having a third bottle because, you know, all that other one's gone. So I need more. Um, and so this last year has been a part of my journey that I'm both grateful for and sad about because, um, the addict brain that I have was like, you can have one drink, you can moderate, it'll be fine. Um, and it wasn't fine. It was fine until it wasn't. It was fine, you know, the first two glasses of wine. And then I was like, well, the bottle's here and it's almost empty. So let me drink the rest of it. While I'm out of that bottle, let me go to the store and get another bottle while I'm drunk, mind you. Um, so a lot of unhealthy patterns were starting to repeat themselves. And again, I'm not someone who was sleeping on a park bench. I, you know, have a job. I have, you know, my own place. I, I've never gotten a DUI. Um, I've never been incarcerated. I'm just a normal person who is not normal. <laughs> I'm a normal addict. That's what I am. Um, you know, um, I can get by and and I don't know what it's like to lose everything, but I know what it's like to lose your fucking mind. <laughs> and um, so I'm back in the program. Um, I have almost three months. My sobriety date is July 12th of this year. And uh, I... And not just using the big book and the 12 steps as my program. I use, uh, I have, I have an ADHD brain. So I like to do a lot of like rabbit hole digging and um, I listen to podcasts and, you know, this one's on my list and I, uh, I use the 12 step Buddhist um, as a supplement to my program um, and it's beautiful and you know it teaches me again I said I don't believe in God I don't um, I believe in a higher power and I know that for people who struggle with the God concept of the 12-step program um, because they do say God a lot and not higher power um, I find that the Buddhist philosophy of approaching it from a um, you know, this is a cessation of suffering. This is the path to cessation of suffering. I find that that is incredibly helpful for me in understanding that it doesn't have anything to do with God. It is a spiritual program. It is a spiritual healing program. And you don't have to believe in God. You do have to believe in a power that's 
bigger than you. Like, and the universe is my higher power. And if the universe isn't bigger than me, I don't know what is, you know, like having a, a belief system that centers around grounding myself to the earth and grounding myself in a spiritual practice that, that appreciates the changing of the leaves in the fall or, you know, the feel of the grass under my feet or the feel of cool water in the, in the creek, you know, like those sorts of things you can appreciate as a higher power, as something bigger than you. It's about stepping out of yourself. And that's kind of where I am with my program now. Um, it sounds like you're doing and, good things. Yeah. <clears throat> I like it. I'm not perfect. I, you know, some days I don't want to meditate. I want to sleep in. And so I do. Um, but, you know, if I could say anything to anybody who's coming in as someone new, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to say the Lord's Prayer when they do that in a 12-step meeting. You can, you know, focus on your own growth and focus on taking they, they always say this in the rooms, take what you need and leave the rest. And that's what I do. Like, I don't think everybody understands my program. And I know that my program is not for everyone. My program is for me. And it's about doing the next right thing, taking the next right action, you know, living the next right truth, you know, using the right words. And I don't mean like making sure my words are perfect. I mean, focusing on words that are going to affirm uh, my path to deepening my spirituality um, and practicing those things in my daily life, practicing kindness, practicing compassion for others and for myself and learning that perfection isn't where it's at. It's about the journey. Like, does it appreciate the journey? Um, and so that's kind of where I am with my program. And and I'm on step two. Um, step one is is, you know, admitting you're powerless over alcohol. And admittance, acceptance, and, you know, a willingness to let go of all that shit is, I think it should be remembered through the whole program because like step one isn't like, oh, let me, let me do this step. <laughs> See that. Let me do this step and I, I'm done. You know, step one is something that we all have to work every day and you know, I'm powerless over this drug of choice. Great. But what do I have power over? I have power over my choices. I have power over my responsibility to myself. And accepting that you aren't, you know, that you aren't in charge of, of that drug and you aren't in charge of your addict brain all the time but you are in charge of yourself and you are in charge of being responsible to your program and to yourself and to your sponsor. And 
creating space to compassionately love that addict part of yourself that a lot of the times people hate, you know, like I want to create a space of compassion for the parts of me that I don't feel are lovable and recovery helps me do that. So it seems like you've come quite a long way since you're starting your addiction. Yeah. You know, like I have a lot of imposter syndrome because I'm like, Oh God, uh, like I wasn't sleeping on a park bench somewhere. Like I have my own place and I'm responsible to pay my bills and like, but at the same time, you know, like two months ago, I was like, yeah, whatever. I don't need this program. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I want to go back to AA. I, I just can't deal with that God shit, you know, but I don't, I think that was my biggest hang up the first time around too, is that, you know, everybody was like, oh God, so great. And I'm just like, I don't believe in your monotheistic views. <laughs> like, no, thank you. Um, but being able to let go of that has enabled me to deepen my practice and focus on this is for my greater good. And this is a higher self kind of philosophy of life. It's not, I don't have to focus on the same shit that everyone else does because mine is different, even though it's a little bit the same. Like I see parts of my story in everyone that I meet in the rooms. And I am so grateful for that. Um, but yeah, two months ago I was like, whatever. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, finding resources outside of the big book has enabled me to kind of go, okay, what's your hang up? Let's work on that. You know, what are we focused on here? Are we focused on being healthy and getting better or are we focused on the fact that these people are talking about God and like is that so important to you that you can't find pieces of your program in them to become a better version of you than you were yesterday um that's a question I ask myself a lot are you focused on the right things um and if my answer is no, then my follow-up is why, you know? And it's hard to be that honest with yourself, but if you're serious about recovery in your program, then you have to get really honest with yourself. And you have to, at least for me, in my experience, I've had to be like brutally honest with myself sometimes, but also find a way to be compassionate about why I'm feeling those things you know why are you feeling like this person is getting on your nerves <laughs> why why are you feeling like their story is is you know irritating to you because some people when they speak I'm just like oh my god shut up 
<laughs> I mean, even with myself, I'm like that. Sometimes. I'm like, Jesus Christ, shut up. You don't, you don't need to share. Um, but it's, you know, it's about finding compassion for yourself and also finding a balance between being really honest and being compassionate in dealing with yourself honestly, I think. At least that's where I am now. Well, it sounds like you're in a good place and that's good. Getting close to the end here, let me ask you a question. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Um, my advice would be if you think you have a problem with whatever addiction you identify with, um, then maybe, you know, get curious, get very curious, um, and go to some open meetings and, and learn more about other people's stories, because you're going to find that you're not alone. Like, you're not the only person in the room. Um, and that's that's my biggest advice. Get curious. That's good. It's the first time I heard anything like that. That's a very good advice. Very, absolutely. Because you got to analyze yourself to see where the flaws are. Yeah. So did you have anything else you want to talk about before we go? Um. You know, I don't think so. I, you know, I really appreciate this opportunity to share my story at, at such a, you know, early stage in my sobriety. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate that there are outside resources and, and I would say, you know, look at outside resources too, because like the big book and the things that you study in group are not the only things that are helpful and trauma therapy helps too. <laughs> therapy is a wonderful thing and I highly recommend it to anyone. Yeah. It helps a lot of people. Yeah. All right. So well, thank you so much. Thanks for letting me be on your podcast. I appreciate no, it. I'm I thank you so much for coming on. It really means a lot. So do me a favor and just sit tight for a few minutes. And yeah. for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw on Hurt, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check out Addicts Anonymous on all platforms as far as social media goes. We're on Twitter, Reddit, TikTok, Instagram. We're on all the major platforms. Um, I also suggest checking out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There's plenty of free resources as well as free literature. And Addicts Anonymous has a book out called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. It's available on all major platforms like Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Amazon. You can find it. Um, so that's all we have for today. I really hope you enjoyed the interview. And hopefully we can catch you next time. Bye.